G'day and welcome to another episode of Perth Property Insider. I'm your host, Jared Mann, and today I'm really excited to be bringing you the very best of 2021. We've gone to the cutting room floor and looked at our highest downloaded episodes for the year, mashed them up, and what we've got for you today is a great montage of some of the very best snippets that we've covered throughout 2021. So excited to get stuck in. Let's go inside. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management specialists servicing the whole of Perth. The context that I have in the industry or with, you know, with professionals out there when I'm doing something, um, it just, it just makes me a lot. I feel better knowing that I will be able to solve any issues that come up. And mm-hmm. my, every subdivision that I've done, <laughs> there's always an issue. It's all about a game of solving issues with subdivisions, yep. no matter how easy it is. Yeah. And what are some of those issues that you've seen come up? Or I guess there's always going to be issues, isn't there, as you just said, but what are some of the mistakes that investors might have made in handling them or in managing their overall project? What's the the common ones that you... Well, it's not about... Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be about managing the projects. It's about underestimating the complexity of the subdivision before it is even conditionally approved. Sometimes people will go and have a particular amount of you know stuff in the piggy bank there ready for the subdivision, but they don't account for public open space contribution. You know? Oh yeah, you know, I've heard that this will be fine. You know, do you are you sure that it's gonna be fine? Have yeah. you got a conditional approval that says that you don't need it? Is that going to be a problem? Do we have to argue this at planning commission? I think one of the common ones I see is people don't appreciate how important soil type is. And why do you think it is that most investors get stuck at one to two? Because I've been diving into it previously on some episodes, but I think with the number of clients you've dealt with, the people that you've helped overcome various obstacles, I think it'd be really great to get your thoughts on why they get stuck. Yeah, I think it's around, we're all taught that debt's bad instead of there's three types of debt, horrible, tolerable, and productive, right? And if you if you have the difference between those three, horrible debt is for stuff you buy that goes down in value, credit cards, yeah. consumer items. Tolerable debt is the debt that you have on your home. It's no one else is helping you pay it off, but at least it's an investment in an asset that hopefully will serve as shelter and capital growth over time. And then there's productive debt, which you buy income producing assets, right? So I think the answer lies in the fact that people are scared of debt because they classify all debt as the same. And then if you think about, mate, I was born in 1975. So my parents, my mum was born in 1948. My dad was born in 1939. So mum's a baby boomer, dad's pre-baby boomer. And if you think about what's normal for him, Buy a house, pay it off as quickly as you can. Owe no one, own nothing to no one, right? Mm. So that that comes into my world, and I I have to challenge that and go, why? Why is that so? But at the very early stage of that, I was thinking, don't get into debt, don't pay it off as quickly as you can, like everyone. So I think there's a combination of being afraid of debt, not classifying debt correctly, the types of debt correctly, 
And then once you get into debt, it can actually be scary, Jared. You know yourself, you, you've probably yeah. got a few zeros on your own balance sheet, right? And if you focus on the amount of zeros, you can get a bit wobbly. So, but Especially if you focus if on- not getting the performance that you yeah. would Why like Why did I do well? this? This is know, torture. It's not even going up in value yeah. and I'm servicing all this debt, taking all the risk. But if you focus on what it takes to service the debt, that number's smaller, that number gives you more confidence and it takes you away from the bigger price. <sighs> And we touched on what is financial independence, but in your book, you talk about being time rich as well. So how do the two link together and, you know, why is this something that we all might want? (laughs) (laughs) Well, who doesn't want to have control over their time, right? To be able to make a decision about how you're going to spend your time. Um, I think most people expect when they hear about the financial independence community, it's usually linked to RE, retire early. And so that word retire just puts people off immediately. They go, but I don't want to sit on a beach doing nothing or I don't want to quit my job. I love my job. So using the phrase time rich instead of retire early was my way of trying to explain to people, once you get to financial independence, it's not that you have to stop working, it's that you get to choose. So the the movement to time rich is this, I have dominion over my time. I get to choose how I spend my time. Now, I work as much, sometimes more now, even though I'm fine, because I love what I do. And I don't have to do it if I don't want to. So when I want to take school holidays off, I can. When I wanted to turn off the business last year while my mum was sick so I could care for her, I could. It's having that option to do it and not wondering about whether you're going to be able to afford to live. So that's the point of being time rich. So they kind of go hand in hand. (laughs) (laughs) The common thing among us all is that we've made a hell of a lot of mistakes. And it was just actually refreshing to see how many mistakes other people have made, believe it or not. I'm not just the only one that's made a heap. So there's a saying that if you've never made any mistakes, you've probably never done anything. And that's certainly true when it comes to investing. And some of the biggest failures in life are those that have never made a mistake at all. You can picture them, you know, they love uh, chiming in on the Facebook groups and um, shooting everything down, but what have they actually done they might be safe. They might uh, not have made any mistakes. They might be right with everything, but they've done nothing. You're not going to get ahead by doing that, by doing nothing. So unfortunately, the lessons that people often take away from making a mistake is that they learn to avoid new situations where they might make another mistake and they avoid their areas of weakness. And so this leads to them shrinking their overall comfort zone down further and further until they're prepared to, they're not prepared to invest or try anything new. And you can see it in people after a series of success, successive mistakes, they're no longer willing to try again instead of finding the real learnings in those and changing up their approach. The number six in my top reasons, challenges that hold investors back from owning more properties, I've got asset selection. So I spend a lot of time in this podcast, you'd know if you're a regular listener, looking at how to select suburbs, how to select your area, how to select your property. I actually recorded a whole episode on that a few episodes ago, so check that out. And you can imagine if you get the the suburb wrong, the area wrong and the property wrong, just how underperforming that investment's going to be. I'm not saying you need to get it all right. I certainly haven't. And asset selection can be a big key to just how much wealth you gain over the longer term. 
So I'll certainly keep coming to you with my ideas on how to do that better. We've had some other great episodes on buying in good school zones and buying near water and the ocean and just how diff- how much that can add up over the longer term. Is now a right time to renovate? Well, it certainly was an ideal time until we had our building grants happen, start sucking all the trades out of the market to becoming too busy. You can still get things accomplished with trades, but that's the one negative to this time to consider renovation as a strategy. But there's a secret weapon to getting access to trades and that's working with your property manager and choosing them before you start your renovation, before you even you know buy your property, they can advise you on the future things that are going to be needed for rentability, what aspects to improve if you wanting to attract tenants and make it as, I guess, set up as well as possible to, you know, have as long a life of the different fittings in them. Tenants can be a bit more hard wearing on properties than you may be if you were living in there. So you want to make smart choices on your colours and your, your the quality of your fixtures so that they're durable. And that property manager is going to have all their trades too. So that's the secret weapon. <laughs> Now, what else do we want in the location? I look for the best area within the suburb where the highest sale prices have been. So you look at past sale price data, RP data, realestate.com.au has got the sold section you can check out. You really want to be buying in the most desirable area of that suburb because it's always going to have stronger appeal in good markets and in bad, and it's going to outperform the other areas hands down. So what else? I don't want any negative factors arising that are going to affect my resale. Now, people don't appreciate it at the moment, just how hard some properties are to sell in a downward market when they have these factors. At the moment, we can find buyers for everything if it's priced accordingly. Sometimes in a downward market, it doesn't matter the price. If it's got these things, you may not be able to find a buyer. So what sort of things? Power lines, and it obviously depends on how much the voltage is, but that also affects the financing abilities of borrowers. And when I say power lines, I mean high voltage power lines because borrowers can't borrow any more than 80% on them. Many just won't even come if they knew that there was a, a power line or power pole directly within sight of the property, especially if it runs on the boundary. I wouldn't buy directly across from the shops or directly across from schools or trains or bus stations or drainage sumps or on main roads. So the question then becomes when we start out on this journey, what strategies can we adopt to achieve that consistent and high growth rate in our capital base in the first phase over the long term in order to acquire those 15, 5 to 15 properties outright. So how can we achieve a consistent and high rate of growth in our capital over the long term to get to that 5 to 15? So after 20-odd years of immersing myself in property investment and learning as much as possible and 12 years of having my property investment real estate agency, I've seen a lot of things and I've learned a lot of things and I've seen strategies that work really well for some people and also same strategy for a different person they completely 
balls it up and lose money and just apply it all wrong and try to do everything themselves. So I've seen what works for our clients. I've also made a lot of mistakes myself. And I can tell you that after all that, there's no one way that works for everyone. And there's many paths to that destination of replacing your income with passive income. So how do we start to set that strategy for you? I can tell you, first of all, what doesn't work. It's easier for me to tell you what doesn't work or works very, very slowly. And it's not going to get you there, you know, before the time that you're ready for retirement. So in my experience from everything that I've seen, buying new properties in far out areas is a very bad strategy for achieving this high growth consistently. Buying in large complexes of high-density apartments is also a very bad strategy for achieving high growth consistently because in both of these situations, you have oncoming and ongoing supply of more land, more apartments that are always competing with it. And what? how does growth come about when demand exceeds supply? And that's just the fundamental of economics there. So in these types of properties, you never get that strong pressure in demand to give you the growth. So some of the areas that people go wrong when they're actually comparing sales is that they don't go into enough detail with their comparisons. And because I appraise 40 to anywhere, I'm almost doing 60 appraisals a month at the moment, I'm used to looking into what a how do things compare and I'm very quick at getting up on value. So you need to obviously start with the macro of how does this location compare to some of the other locations in the suburb and that's why you do need that insider knowledge and to look at the discrepancies between prices for similar types of properties and to know, look at where the amenities are and to factor these in to how they affect value. But once you've got your location, it's understood generally when you're on a coastal suburb, closer to the beach is going to be better. When you're closer to amenities and closer to the school, it's going to be better, but not right on the school or right on the amenities. Other reasons for significant increases in prices when you're overlooking a parkland. Who doesn't want to want to buy overlooking a park? I certainly would. And when you drive down the street, and you can use Google Street View for this, how does the street present? So when we were looking to buy a home, I wouldn't buy in anything unless it was beautifully tree-lined and everyone was taking pride in their houses and the noticeable signs of renovation and, you know, there was the occasional house that had been knocked down with substantial houses rebuilt and when you drive down that street, it just... It is an amazing feeling and an, and an environment. What does a train station do for an area? It's not just an improvement to the transport infrastructure and the, and the accessibility of an area, and certainly that does add to a property, uh, an overall suburb and individual properties' desirability. But it's also, in many cases, that the town planning involves creating a centre of a business precinct around a train station. And this can really add amenity to a suburb and also increase jobs for the area too. 
which further adds to the desirability of the location. All these factors, I guess, contribute to the overall desirability for residents. And unless, of course, your property is directly across the road from a station, as the stations often cause traffic and parking congestion and would decrease the desirability if you're backing directly onto one. So don't buy directly (laughs) adjacent to a train station. And if you happen to already be there and where one is located, then it may be worth considering selling out sooner rather than later if you're planning to sell. Otherwise, you hopefully the, the benefit will outweigh the negative.